0: Welcome to Intergenerational Politics with Jill Weinbanks and Victor Shi, where we host weekly political discussions that are engaging and relevant to all generations. As always, we want to thank you for listening to Intergenerational Politics. If you haven't done so already, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts to support future episodes. And we also have a website, intergenerationalpolitics.com. This is Victor She, a freshman at UCLA, the youngest elected delegate for Joe Biden, and also the co-host of this podcast.
1: And I'm Jill Wine-Banks, his co-host and the author of The Watergate Girl, which I hope you'll all take the time to read about my experience during the Watergate scandal. I'm now an MSNBC legal analyst talking about the more current scandals. And I'm also uh, known for my pins. And today for our very special episode I've decided on a chaos pin because I think we are in the middle of terrible chaos that hopefully will be ending shortly.
0: For sure. Um, So yesterday, Donald Trump left office and Joe Biden became the 46th president of the United States, something that gave us hope and relief Um, from the beginning of the Trump administration. We saw abuses of powers, crimes, corruption, and impeachable behavior. He was, in fact, impeached twice, the first president in history with that distinction. Um, You know, Trump began his presidency with a religiously discriminatory ban um, against predominantly Muslim countries and ended it by inciting an insurrection against the U.S. government, striking at the very core of our government institutions and function and democracy itself, and a flurry of unwanted pardons as well.
1: A few days ago, we spoke to Anthony Scaramucci, President Trump's White House communications director, for just 10 days before he was fired. Known as the Mooch, he is now an outspoken critic of Trump. He was more successful on Wall Street than at the White House starting his career at Goldman Sachs, where he was fired after a year, rehired two months later, and left many years later as vice president of wealth management. where he And then he started his own very successful capital management firm. Scaramucci supported the presidential campaigns of Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama before he turned to support Donald Trump. Although he never practiced law, he does have a JD from Harvard and a BA in finance from Tufts. His books include Many uh, terrific ones, and there are commentaries on politics and on Wall Street. He has made um, himself into a very popular guest on every network and cable channel. We asked him uh, about being lured to the White House and his insights from that time, where he thinks the Republican Party goes from here, what he thinks Trump will do post presidency, and the challenges facing the Biden administration because of the mess that Trump created and his last-minute impediments that he is now putting in place.
0: Yes, so thank you so much for being here, Anthony. We are really looking forward to the discussion.
2: Well, first of all, it's a very flattering introduction. I think my mom must have wrote that for Jill, so I want to thank you for (laughs) reading it exactly the way my mother wrote it. That was very nice. Um, But I just got to set the record straight. I was there for eleven days. Okay, I can prove that. So you can't chip me out of nine point one percent of my federal career because each day is precious. And by the way, on the eleventh day, I actually got fired. So that was was significant. And so I just point out: if you start on July twenty-first and you're fired on the thirty-first, count the days. And of course, I left the White House at about two thirty in the afternoon. So I think it's like a, you know, you get the full day on the thirty-first. But uh, Anyway, uh, but you know, the interesting thing, Jill, and I think you'd appreciate this, and so would you, Victor. Uh, the person that fired me, General John Kelly, uh, that was his first official act as chief of staff, him and I had become very close personal friends, and uh, we were recently in Iowa together uh, speaking at the Iowa Land Expo. So we've, uh, you know, politics makes strange bedfellows, as both of you know, uh, but I think General Kelly and I have a lot more in common than people would have probably
0: predicted for sure i mean that that those you two i mean at, at least in the trump administrations but it's been such a long 4 years but you two are like the early uh people in the trump administration but now you both are it seems to me at John Kelly as well, you guys are both outspoken now against Trump. And that's been an interesting evolution that we want to get into um, today. But let's actually begin with your time in presidential politics. Because as you said, um, as Jill said, um, you first started out supporting Hillary. In 2015, you called Trump a hack politician, which I think proved true. But then you joined the Trump campaign's finance team. So I guess what made you first decide to start supporting Donald Trump?
2: Well, let me take you guys back, if you don't mind. So I've been a lifelong Republican. Uh, President Obama uh, and I were in law school together. Uh, I was class of 89 from Harvard Law School. He was class of 91. And so when he ran for president, um, a lot of my friends were supporting him. They asked me to meet with him. I had no experience in presidential politics. I did have some experience in local politics. uh, And this is my story in politics very quickly. I'm hired at Goldman, I'm then fired. I move into the private banking area of Goldman. I need to establish a network. And so I don't have a network. My dad was a blue collar laborer, uh, 42 years as a crane operator out here on Long Island. And so I started writing campaign checks. My first check was to Rudolf Giuliani. Uh, We can talk about Rudy if you guys want, but I choose to remember him the way he once was. Uh, It was a small check, it was $250. He lost that election in 1989, we became friends. I helped him in 93. He then introduced me to Governor Pataki and then Rudy being Rudy, he left the Pataki campaign to endorse uh, Mario Cuomo. And so uh, George and I obviously always used to laugh about that but I had a good relationship with him and I was doing that for networking purposes. I'm just gonna talk to you guys as openly as possible. Yes, I'm a moderate Republican sort of center right on business and likely way to the left on social issues. I'm sort of very agnostic about people's lives and their bodies. It's their bodies, it's their lives. I don't think anybody should have any say in that. I often tease my conservative Republican friends, you want a smaller government everywhere, but in my bedroom, you want a larger government. My bedroom is just absolutely hypocritical. So so that is my garden variety politics. Um, In 2008, Jill is correct, one of my Largest clients called me and said, hey, Senator Clinton is running for president. I want you to make a donation. So I did make that donation. And I was the garden variety business executive that did make donations to both Republicans and Democrats pursuant to what was going on in business. And by the way, Donald Trump was like that. He's written checks to Kamala Harris. He's written checks to Senator Schumer. You'll find me on Senator Schumer's donor list years ago. Uh, so I did write a check to Secretary Clinton, but I actually bundled for then Senator Obama. And so quickly on that story, I met him at the university club. I had a check in my pocket. So I had to check over here. I said, hey, Senator, I'm about to write you a big check. I said, we didn't really know each other in law school, but I want to lie to all my buds and tell them that we knew each other. I'm going to give you a big check. Is it OK if I tell people that? And Senator Obama, at that time he was senator, now now former president, but he says to me, hey, he said, Mooch, if you double the amount of the check, we can take it right back to Hawaii. Okay, I thought it was a great line. (laughs) He had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. And of course, I doubled the amount of the check and I went on the bundle for him. He won the presidency. Um, And I think by and large, he was a good president. He handled things reasonably well. Uh, But I returned to my Republican roots because I was a lifelong Republican. And so uh, when he was exiting the presidency, I joined the campaign of uh, Scott Walker. Um, It was unclear to me if Scott was going to make it to the nomination, but I knew that that would help me uh, because I actually thought Jeb Bush was going to make it to the nomination. This is politics. I think you guys appreciate that. And I knew if I joined Scott's campaign and he left and I was one of his senior people, it would give me a bigger start with Jeb. And that did happen. And so I sprung right into Jeb's senior finance committee. Uh, and then, of course, Jeb lost the South Carolina primary and then bowed out of the race. And then somebody I knew for 20 years, uh, Mr. Trump, called me and insisted I go to work for him. And Jill is correct. I called him a hack politician. I said that he would be president of the Queens County Bullies Association. <laughs> you can go back and see that tape. And I wrote an op ed. Uh, last year, and it was an open letter written to John Bolton, Ambassador Bolton, who is an acquaintance of mine. I can't say that we're friends, but we know each other reasonably well from the television circuit and from Republican politics. My open letter to John Bolton, which was published in the Washington Post, was, hey, John Bolton, welcome to life under the Trump bus. And what I said is we all start out disliking Trump. That would include Lindsey Graham, Kellyanne Conway, Mike Pompeo, Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio. Uh, you pick the person. Everybody started out denouncing Donald Trump, Rick Perry. And then what happens is he goes on to win the presidency or he's ascending to the nomination. And then you're doing what I would call practical conformity. And again, this is wrong, by the way. And I've owned this mistake that I've made. What's practical conformity? Okay, I'm going to hold my nose. I'm going to figure out a way to like Mr. Trump. I'm going to figure out a way to like like him and be a team player in republican party politics and then you go to the other side of the York where you're like okay my god my original supposition about him was correct and then the disavowal starts and so me my disavowal started about two years after i was fired um i felt that my firing was fair by the way uh, we don't have to recant the history i said something very new yorker-ish to a reporter that I trusted. I thought we were off the record. That's my fault. He ran out and reported it. I thought it was somewhat opportunistic of him, but it was a mistake by me. I own that mistake. And so Victor, this is really for your generation. If you make a mistake, be accountable, own the mistake. I never blamed General Kelly for my firing or President Trump made a mistake. It was a fireable offense. I got fired, Uh, no bitterness. I walked out of the White House. I got rolled in broken glass by the late night comedians, and I got put through the Shawshank Redemption on the other side. I could tell you that story, too, if you're interested. But here I am on the other side of this now, and I wanted to be loyal to the president. I wanted to be loyal to the Republican Party. But now we're separating women from children at the border. I'm on CNN. I'm sorry. I can't accept that. Now we're disavowing the intelligence agencies that protected us after 9-11, and we're praising Vladimir Putin in Helsinki geez, I'm sorry, I can't accept that. Now we're doubling down on the press being the enemy of the people. And if you guys remember, I was a short-lived communications director, but my agreement with President Trump was that we were going to dial down that rhetoric and establish a detente with the press. And he was tripling down on that rhetoric. I wrote an op-ed in the Hill magazine, thehill.com, Mr. President, the press is not the enemy of the people. Well, that was the last day I spoke to President Trump. It was the 21st of April 2019, Easter Sunday, he called me and he started yelling at me. He said, I thought you were my friend. This article's horrific and blah, blah, blah. I said, Well, it's really not. I said, Don't you want the moderates and the independents? And he said something very telling. He said, No, I just want the base. I'm focused on the base. Everything else will take care of itself. And so I'll stop there. But it was July, a couple of months after that, continued havoc and pandemonium. Uh, telling the squad that they needed to go back to the countries that they originally came from. I said, okay, no mas for me. He was at the height of his popularity, by the way, height of his approval ratings, July of 2019. I said, I'm sorry, I can no longer support this.
0: Wow, that, that is such a fascinating story. And you know, I think you mentioned one word which really stuck out to me, which was loyalty. And I think that's just how so many Republicans have approached this is like you said, they start out saying, you know, well, you know, Donald Trump is not not a great politician. He's a divisive figure. But then they start becoming more and more loyal to him. And we are seeing that now, um, even with an insurrection at the Capitol, people like Lindsey Graham and Ted Cruz still find a way to keep supporting him. Um, but when you first kind of met Donald Trump, I guess, when did you first meet Donald Trump? You mentioned that it was, you know, you knew him for 20 years. When was that first moment that you met Donald Trump? And um, what, what, what was your impression of him during that time?
2: Okay, so I was 10 years older than you. Okay, I was probably 30. And I met Donald Trump in 1994, or 1995, in his office at Trump Tower. I was working at Goldman Sachs. And we were contemplating doing a deal for him. It was actually a refinancing deal. And my boss said to me, hey, do you want to go meet Donald Trump? Now, you have to remember, I was an impressionable blue-collar kid. I wasn't from an outer borough even. I was worse than that. I was from Long Island, okay? And so, and I was from blue-collar Long Island. And so, like it or not, back then, Mr. Trump was iconic. He was on the front page of the Post. He wrote the book, Art of the Deal. His name was plastered everywhere. He had gone through a bankruptcy and he was resurging out of the bankruptcy. And so for people like me, and this is honestly was an attraction to many of my friends who didn't go to college, who are still living out here on blue collar Long Island, he was the apotheosis of the American dream. It is not a refined apotheosis. It's not an elitist apotheosis, but it's a rapper apotheosis. It's a blue collar apotheosis. And so I immediately said yes. I went to go meet with him. Uh, I can remember his office, it looks very the same, very much the same today. And he couldn't have been more charming. I don't know if Jill has met him or if you've met him, Victor, but in a one-on-one setting, uh, particularly if he sees that you are one of his fans, he couldn't be more charming, he couldn't be more gracious. And there I was at an impressionable 30 years old in his office at Trump Tower, uh, uh, thinking it was very cool and being an impressionable person that I was at that moment In my life, I was probably name dropping that I met him. Now, I didn't really build a relationship with him until 2010. Now, why is that? Uh, Like, I joined CNBC. I think you said that you work with NBC, Jill. And so I was at CNBC, and I was a contributor there. And I got invited to one of the Apprentice, I think, launch parties or the premiere for the season. Okay, and then I got invited to one of the finales, and then I got invited to this and that, and then I met with him at the Robin Hood Foundation dinner. And Mm -hmm. then he endorsed Governor Mitt Romney, and I had returned to my Republican roots and I went to go work for Mitt. And we did a fundraiser together, not one, but two fundraisers in Mr. Trump's triplex apartment. Now, if you've ever been in that apartment, it looks like Louis XIV smoked crystal meth and then decorated the apartment. (laughs) It's like one of these bizarre things, okay? And so we did two fundraisers there with uh, Governor Romney. Michael Cohen was there. Um, And there it is. I started developing this connection and relationship with him, went to a few Yankee games. And we had a rapport. Now, no one's friends with Donald Trump, but we had a good rapport. And he thought I was good on television. He used to call me and give me television tips and all this sort of stuff. Um, And when he ran for president, he recruited me. So it was the morning after The Apprentice. And it was March of 2015. It was the season finale. And I'm in his office for breakfast. And he said, well, how, how did I do last night? And I said to him, well, what was last night? He said, what do you mean, what was the last night? It was the season finale at Apprentice. I had the greatest ratings, the most fantastic ratings ever. You weren't watching. I said, no, I wasn't watching. He goes, well, you were the only one in the country not watching. You know, that's- <laughs> and then he said, well, that's over. I'm running for president. I want you to come work for me. And that was March of 2015. I said, well, Mr. Trump, I'm already working for Scott Walker. And truth be told, if he comes out of the race, I'm going to work for Jeb Bush. And then he said something to me, which is, you know, consistent with his personality. Okay, that's loyalty. I respect that. If they leave the race, I'm going to call you. I'm going to recruit you. I want you to come work for me. Hmm. I said, "Okay, if they both leave the race, I will come work for you. Then he started attacking the hedge fund. OK, and so then that's when I said that he was a hack. And that's when I said he was a bully. He then called me and he invited me to his office. He said, well, what the hell are you doing? You're attacking me. I said, you're attacking my business. You're attacking my industry. I'm not going to take your BS. And he said, OK, that's respectable. And I said, oh, by the way, I pay a very high tax rate. And then him being Mr. Trump, he goes, well, you need a new accountant then. I'm going to introduce you to my accountant. OK, and so the we had a truce. And then I made one of the more fateful decisions of my life after Jeb Bush came out of the race and Jeb Bush who signed the pledge, remember everyone was signing pledges back then that they were gonna support the eventual nominee. And so Jeb signed that pledge and he disavowed that pledge and he took the position that Trump is not a Republican and I'm not going to support him. I took the position rightly or wrongly that he was a Republican and I was gonna stick with the party And support his candidacy. And that's that arc I'm describing. You start out disliking him. You're trying to figure out a way to like him. That's that practicality. And of course, by the end of 2000, you know, mid 2019, I said, I couldn't take it anymore.
0: Right. All right. So we're going to fast forward a little bit in your life and your career um, in politics. Um, So, you know, you joined the campaign in 2015, um, and then, you know, Trump wins, and then you become uh, assistant to Donald Trump and the director for the White House Office of Public Liaison and Government Affairs. Um, You know, that gives you such a unique perspective into who Donald Trump is, not only. I guess, as a president that the public sees, but also as a person. So, um, you know, we've seen a lot of people say that, you know, President Trump didn't actually want to become president. It was more for a kind of like the fame and the self-aggrandizement. Did you ever get that feeling when you first started out working with him or kind of what were those first few days like in the administration?
2: So did he, did he think he was going to win? No, he did not think he was going to win. Anybody that wants to revise history and pretend otherwise, that's fine. I was with him on election. I did not think he was going to win. Did he want to win? A hundred percent. Michael Wolf said that he didn't even want to win. I'm sorry. I disagree with that. I was with him. 71 campaign stops. He was working tirelessly to the end, and he definitely wanted to win. Was it a publicity stunt with an expectation that he was going to lose? Yes, it was. No question about that. But he won. And so now it's the morning after. It's Wednesday, November the 9th. Uh, I can set the scene for you. None of us have slept. It's 11 a.m. in Trump Tower. We're in his office. He's now the president-elect of the United States. We're congratulating him. And he turns to me and says, well, you're going to come work for me. And I'm like, well, no, I'm not going to do that. i got my own business. I'm hosting Wall Street Week for the Fox Business Channel. I'm, I'm good. I wish you well, but I'm not really that politically involved. No, no, I'm the president of the United States. I'm going to give you a job, you know, 45 times bigger than your company, and you're going to come work for me. I said, all right, we'll we'll talk about it. And then true to him, on Friday, he names me to his 16-person presidential transition committee, the senior presidential, one of 16 people. How do I learn this? I learned this from Fox News. And so I'm getting congratulations. I call him on his cell phone. He answers. I said, you you name me to the transition committee. I said, well, you you didn't even tell me. He goes, yeah, yeah. If I told you, you would have told me no, but now you're on a committee. And so show up for work and let's go. We're going to pop, 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 pop. And so now I'm starting to get sucked in, right? There's the trappings of power. There's the seduction of politics. And then there's my own self narrative, another learning lesson for younger people listening. Don't let your ego defect Affect your decision making. Don't let your pride affect your decision making. Because the minute you do that, your emotions are going high and your intelligence is going low, and you start making really stupid decisions. So I went back and told my wife that I'm on the presidential transition committee. She said, "Well, you told me you were going to work for me. I said, "Yes, I did." Now my wife hates him almost as much as Melania. I mean, I mean, Melania's probably up here, but I think my <laughs> wife is right in that next layer. You know. And so she's like, well, I don't want you to work for him. He's a disaster and blah, blah, blah. And I put flaps down over my ears, pride and ego, pride and ego. And so the first job that I was offered was to be the White House liaison. I was offered the OPL position, the public engagement position, as you're mentioning, was called the Office of Public Liaison, which is effectively to be the president's chief networking officer. Now what I didn't understand, because I didn't read the Watergate girl at the time, I didn't understand that Washington is totally different from Wall Street. It is not even close, okay? I thought people were ruthless on Wall Street. They are a bunch of babies compared to Washington. I thought that there were tough people on Wall Street, okay? I tell my friends, I want you to imagine the worst possible person that you could imagine on Wall Street that's the Eagle Scout in Washington. That is the vicar of morality. And so what happened to me is that Steve Bannon and Reince Priebus, for whatever reason, thought I guess I was a competitor of theirs. They did not want me in that administration. So they started an oppo research file on me. They tried to find some nefarious things about me. They couldn't find anything. And then I made a fateful mistake. What was that? Your family is from China, right? You said that they were from Beijing. Uh, I put my company up for sale, pursuant to the governmental ethics that I needed to be uninvolved with anything, no violation of the Emoluments Clause. So I put my company up for sale. I had Wachtell Lipton handling the merger. I had Morgan Stanley handling the M&A, Greg Fleming, I'm sorry, the former president for Morgan Stanley handling the M&A. And I had a couple of bids. The second highest bid was from a Chinese company. I took that bid, even though it was $12 million less than the high bid, because the Chinese company was gonna keep all my employees. I didn't want my employees to be looking for work for me to go work in the administration. And that was a fateful mistake because Steve and Ryan seized on that. They wrote this opposition research. I'm a lobbyist for China, Chinese intelligence. I mean, all of this nonsense that wasn't true. And so Mr. Trump then called me and said, well, I can't give you that job until this is cleared up. I said, okay, listen, we know each other for a long period of time. These are super, super bad guys. Trust me, you're going to want to get rid of these guys. And when you do, give me a call. I'll come down and take care of it for you. So that was colossal mistake number like 572,000. Again, all tied to pride and ego. Watch your pride. Watch your ego. Steve Bannon and Ryan's Priebus were doing a number on me. And so therefore, I was going to fix their gooses. I was going to do a number on that. Very simplistic thinking. Very immature, very shallow, but tied to pride and ego. And so lo and behold, it's mid-July. President calls me. You were right about these two SOBs. Come down. I want to talk to you. Went down there. I met him in the study off the Oval Office. And he said, well, I want you to help me get rid of these guys. I got to rebuild the administration. They're a disaster, blah, blah, blah. Okay, great. He picks up the phone. Are there any West Wing offices open? The White House director of operations said, yeah, you you, know, you fired Mike Dubke or Mike Dubke left. The director of communications is open. So he turns to me and says, Anthony, you're going to be the director of communications. I, said, I can't be the director of communications. I don't know anything about it. Now ah, Relax, you'll figure it out as you go. Uh, but you'll be here in the West Wing and you'll help me get rid of these guys. And that's how the thing started. 11 short days later, I made a colossal mistake, got fired. But I also got those guys fired. And uh, as my suicide vest was going off, I was reaching for Bannon. And thankfully, I blew Bannon out the front door into Pennsylvania Avenue because of all the people I've met in my life, he was one of the more dangerous people. He was a megalomaniacal narcissist, white Christian nationalist, uh, a nihilist in many ways, uh, somebody that really wanted to create this havoc that we're now uh, in. Somebody that is an insurrectionist, literally, and I'm sure as this thing unfolds, people will recognize that he was probably part of it. And I would say this to both of you, and I'm very proud of this, and you guys can be mad at me for, it's not a humble brag. This is a brag brag. Okay, I'm giving you a brag brag, no humble brag. I am thrilled that despite my shortcomings and my failure inside the White House, that I was an accessory to blowing Steve Bannon out of the White House. I just want you to imagine the two of those crazy people working together inside the White House over the last couple of years, how much damage has been caused and how much damage could have been caused as a result of those two people. And so I'll leave it there on that. Uh, but you know, that's how I got into the White House and that was my relationship with Steven Rice. And by the way, I've offered to debate Steve Bannon anywhere, any place, live television, Zoom, on a stage. He can pick the moderator. Now, Jill, let me (laughs) ask you a question. You think he said yes to that ever?
1: (laughs) Well, if he had, you would have done it. So I guess the answer is no. But But the, the bigger question for him now is, is he going to get a preemptive pardon for his fake building of a wall and using supposedly charitable money in Texas? Okay, so Uh,
2: this is being broadcast after the inaugural and after these decisions. So I'm going to go out on a limb and say that he's not. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that he's not because um, he ruffled Trump's feathers. He told people that Trump was his hand puppet and that he was the Svengali of Trump. Uh, And even though uh, Trump was using him at the end here to see if he could create havoc and possible insurgency and insurrection... I don't think they're close enough for Trump to give him a uh, a part. So let's see. You'll okay. be recording. We'll, we'll
1: see. We may. Um, yeah, we'll we'll know before this is probably broadcast whether. Right. Well, we will know for sure because yeah. it'll be after inauguration. But right. so let's go back um, to the administration, which started out with the big lie about the inaugural crowd and Sean Spicer, you know, trumpeting this totally fake news.
2: Sean Spicer's suit was, Sean Spicer's suit was larger than the crowd. Okay. I mean, the guy needed a tailor, right? I'm sorry.
1: So at the time that this was going on, because, and his was only one of many that followed. um, When did you actually get to the White House?
2: Well, so I had a blue pass. You know, I had access to the White House because I was named the OPL director. Okay, and so I had a blue pass. I was in the White House the first week or so until I was told that I was no longer going to be the OPL director. So I was there when Sean. I wasn't in the press room at the time. I was actually in the old Executive Office Building mm-hmm. at the time that he was making those remarks. And, and uh, did and, you see uh,
1: that as a predictor of? You know this fake news bit that they were going to engage in, or what? Um, and no, unfortunately,
2: before. I didn't see that at the time. I mean, that vessel cracked for me later. But what I didn't understand, all Sean had to do is he had to say, "Well, listen, since President Obama's administration, there's been the introduction of a smartphone in 2009. There were no iPhones. It came out in April of 2007, but they didn't really be, manifest themselves into this until years hence." Mm -hmm. And what I would have said now in 2016, or now 17 January, you know, maybe there were more eyeballs watching it because people were watching it virtually. That's all he had to say. But to go up there and triple down on this quote unquote big lie, that was an interesting touchstone. And then of course, Kellyanne Conway said alternative facts. And then now we're off to the races with we're going to get some really twisted nonsense coming out of the White House.
1: And and then it wasn't more than a few months later that you were actually named the third White House communications director. And I stress that because having three in such a short time is already remarkable. But um, first of all, just so that the audience knows what the job of the communications director is, and then I want to talk, well, let's, let's answer that first.
2: Well, you know, you could go to uh, Scaramucci communications plan. Uh, CNN actually published it. It was an eight page plan that I put together, uh, which unfortunately I didn't get a chance to implement. But what it is, what it was to me is you are broadcasting the president's message. Uh, He has the bully pulpit, like Teddy Roosevelt said, and he can control the political news cycle. It's the federal political news cycle. And whether you're Mike Deaver for Ronald Reagan Um, You can pick different successful communications directors, Pierre Salinger, press secretary communications director for uh, John Kennedy. Your job is to shape the image of the president and your job is to project the policies that you want out there and obviously position it in the right way so that you can get a plurality of the American people on board. And that will help you lubricate the Congress to get the president's agenda passed. And so I looked at it like a broadcast executive's job. And what I basically said is this would be network news headquarters, the, the White House, and those 19 different cabinet uh, people and their varying communications directors would be like our bureaus. And so what we would try to do is what my Deaver did, start the day early, shape the message early. Whether it's MSNBC or CNN or Fox, the news director is shaping the day. There's one you watch those shows from 6 a.m. in the morning till 9 p.m. of night, there's a, there's a thread through those shows. Every day there's a thread. You know? On Fox, here's the following thread. You know, And then on MSNBC, there'll be a different thread, but each show has it. And I wanted to adopt that strategy for Mr. Trump and the presidency. And then I wanted to be in coordination with the varying communications directors at the different agencies, sub-agencies, et cetera. And so uh, we didn't do that. Of course, that never got done. And in the four years that Mr. Trump was president, there was really only one communications director. Uh, People had the title of communications director, but the one communications director was Donald J. Trump. There were no other Hmm. communications directors. By the way, there was one chief of staff. He went through four of them. There's only one chief of staff. That was Donald J. Trump. Um, So so you you have to accept that if you know his personality.
1: And you mentioned successful um, communications directors, and I would have to add to that Nicole Wallace, who uh, I think- yeah, did Nicole a Wallace was them.
2: incredibly successful. Uh, there are others. I, you know, I'm drawing a blank on this gentleman's name, but he was eight years the communications director for Bill Clinton. We could probably look him up mm-hmm. during the podcast. Yeah. I have a very funny story. I met him in Washington. He came over to say hello to me, and he said, you know- I got to just tell you something. He says, you know, I was the blankety blank communications director for Bill Clinton for eight years. Nobody knew who I was. And every once in a while, people say, well, what did you do in politics? I "I was a communication. You mean like the mooch? Were you the communications director like the mooch? (laughs) And he said it in a tongue in cheek way, but he was also a little miffed. You know what I mean? But Let's face it. I mean, it was 11, it was an 11 day catastrophe, but it did, it did raise my profile a touch.
1: Right. But so let's talk about that because, um, when you were appointed, Sean Spicer, who had been who was the White House press secretary um, and had been his first communications director, resigned because he had a vehement objection to your appointment. Uh, you also you've mentioned him and you've mentioned Priebus, um, and Priebus, who was the chief of staff, also had vehement objections. And I'm just wondering, from a personal standpoint, number one, what you felt your your qualifications were for the job, uh, because I mean you've had an interesting career, but um, bundling for a campaign or doing wealth management isn't exactly the same thing as managing the communications for the president of the United States. And so I'm just—I'd I'd like you to answer their vehement yeah, objections.
2: Well, well, I mean, I think I think the only scintilla of qualification I had is that I had run a television show for the Fox News Channel, Fox Business on Wall Street. I was the host of that show. uh, And that wasn't enough. And to be very candid, again, I know this is an intergenerational conversation, but I'm really talking to younger people here. uh, I was ill-suited for that job. And when the president offered me that job, had I had not had my pride and ego installed in my brain chemistry at that moment, I would have said, no, that is the wrong job. I'm not well-suited. By the way, Jill, I would tell you, though, honestly, I was incredibly well suited for the OPL job because Mm -hmm. I spent my entire life networking, my entire life bundling, my entire life connecting people. Mm -hmm. Uh, I had built the SALT conference, which I think you guys must know about or might know about. 2,500 person conference, uh, did it 14 times. So I was a conference organizer, uh, an MC of that conference. And so the OPL job, very well suited for, would have been a good job for me. The director of communications job, very ill-suited, didn't have the experience, didn't have the technical training or the background, should have never taken that job. But I took that job because Priebus and Bannon blocked me from the original job. And I put my pride and my ego uh, where my cognitive thinking, my dispassionate cognitive thinking should have been. And I made a mistake in taking that job. And so it's a really good question. And I want to answer these questions very honestly with an extreme level of authenticity, because I want younger people to learn from a a very fateful mistake like that.
1: And I appreciate the candor. It it can't be easy because, but how did it feel? I mean, I'm, I'm not viewed as being um, sensitive. I'm viewed as, you know, a powerful (laughs) go get it done person. But if that had happened to me, I would have crawled into a hole. I would have been destroyed. And I'm just wondering, you know, there is a difference between men and women. Um, women think they have to you have 100% the, of the, the qualifications. In the firing,
2: you mean? Or what do you mean? Well,
1: me. in what they were saying about you, oh. uh, you know, and not just the firing, but the whole experience. Um, you've said, you know, really I didn't have any qualifications for that job. I can see you in a networking job in a instant. That's perfect for you. But this one... You know, I have to scratch my head and say, well, um, if I were him, I wouldn't have taken it because I would have, and this is true by research, women think they have to have 100% of the qualifications for a job. Men think if they have one of 10, they're qualified. So uh, did you think you were qualified? Did you know you weren't? Did it hurt your feelings that people were saying these terrible things? No, I
2: I knew I wasn't qualified. Uh, I guess people saying terrible things. This is another big lesson for people. You know, I guess I took my grandmother seriously because my grandmother used to tell us that what other people think of you is none of your business. And, and I often feel like I would never be where I am today. If I really thought long and hard about what other people thought of me. So there I am in high school, public school, you really are not going to succeed at us. It's the wrong school for you you're a fish out of water, go to Tufts, graduated top of the class. Well, Harvard, you're a fish out of water. You shouldn't really go to Harvard, go to Harvard. Goldman Sachs, I did have a firing episode there, but that was more related to a structural problem in that area. Uh, It wasn't related to my performance necessarily. Mm -hmm. We were going through a recession and just think about this. They thought well enough of me that they recommended me for another area and I got rehired at that other area and served them well for seven years. And at each point in my life, If I had sat back and thought about what people are thinking and or saying about me, I could have never created the career arc that I created. I was 32. I left Goldman. My ex-boss said to me, you're going to fail at this hedge fund. Well, why is that? Well, you don't have enough experience. You're not qualified. You're going to fail at the hedge fund. And he may have been right. Okay, because remember, some of your life is providential. Some of it is serendipity. Some of it is luck. But also, you have to put yourself out there. You have to risk failure. You have to be able to embrace it when it happens to you and you have to be able to deal with your fear. Everybody is fearful. Courage is not the lack of fear. Everybody is fearful. but Courage is the inspiration that you may be able to get it right. And so what I would say to you, Jill, is I've bounced a few times. I've had setbacks in my life, uh, but it's not what other people think of me that matters to me. It's what I think of myself what my friends and family think of me that's important but what other people think of me doesn't matter you know my my son i'm still ready to strangle him he's 28 now uh, but he was 25 at the time he just graduated from stanford business school but when i got fired from the white house he put a 14 minute compendium of every late night comedian including two impersonators mm-hmm. of me one was a saturday night live impersonator and one was mario Cantone, who was on sex in the city as a comedian And it was a 14-minute excoriation of me. It was literally like having your skin filleted and rolled in margarita salt. I was ready to strangle the kid. But you either laugh at that and you go with the punch of that or you're not capable of that. I am. When Stephen Colbert invited me on his show, I accepted the invitation. He said to me, well, did you think you were going to last a long time? I said, well, Stephen, I thought I was going to last longer than a carton of milk in the refrigerator. (laughs) I didn't think I was going to get blown out before the milk went bad. I mean, the point is you either own it, Jill, and you roll with it Mm -hmm. or you don't, you know, and for me, I couldn't be where I am today uh, in terms of the arc of the American dream that I've experienced going from my blue collar household and that blue collar neighborhood to Tufts and Harvard and Goldman Sachs and the White House, albeit for 11 days and 16 years now at Skybridge Capital and the SALT Conference and all of the television punditry, if I wasn't willing to take risk and wasn't willing to roll with whatever the havoc came from that risk-taking.
1: That is great advice for everyone, uh, Victor's generation, and mine as well. Um, but let, let's talk a little bit about, you were one of the first people who worked for Trump, who then came out as criticizing him. And so I want to ask you about Why did you decide that you would have the strength to do that? Were you worried that it would hurt your career? Um, And why do you think more people who work in the White House haven't done that?
2: Well, he's very intimidating. You know, he's got, uh, he doesn't have it anymore, but uh, when he was up on Twitter, he had 88 million Twitter followers. His social media presence was 200 million. And so every tweet or every uh, snippet from Mr. Trump, President Trump, was reaching a Super Bowl audience times. And so he was also the leader of the free world, and he was in arguably the most powerful position in the world. And so people would say, well, why do I need to pick that fight? Or why do I need to go up against that? Obviously, Republicans are cowering. Uh, Only one broke from the Republican Party and looked at the facts of the case and voted to convict him. That was Mitt Romney. Everybody else went in a different direction. I think Mitt will a long time and forever be rewarded for that but I just wanna set the scene for you. I left, I got fired. I've already accepted my accountability for my firing. I wanna be loyal. You're in a trap with Mr. Trump because he's always moving the goalposts on you. Are you loyal over here? Yes, I am. Okay, let me say something even more outrageous. Are you loyal now? Yes, I am. Okay, I'm gonna say something even more outrageous. Yes, I am. And before you know it, you're Rudy Giuliani, you're off the table. You're in the barrel going over Niagara Falls and you've lost your moral standing and your moral principles and so um it should have come earlier for me uh, my liberal friends would say well he's the same guy that he was riding down the escalator he was yes. calling mexican rapists and so what changed about him where you disavowed him in 2019 and i will say well maybe nothing changed about him i'll accept their point but something did change about me okay i had become more psychologically minded the experience on the white house was very humbling my awareness of what he was doing, sort of that spell broke for me. And I had to make a decision, rightly or wrong. They had to make a decision good for me. And so I could have stayed the course, Jill or Victor. I could have just said, OK, no problem. He's an awkward, bad guy. Let me stay out of it. I'm just going to go focus on my business. You ask me a question, I'm going to answer it. It hurt my business. It hurt my business. Because when you're with the Republicans and you break from the Republicans, they leave you. When you're with the Republicans, you're not with the Democrats, they leave you. okay. And I lost business on both sides of the political spectrum. It is the reason why Michael Jordan, when they asked him, whether you're a Democrat or Republican, he says, hey, they both buy sneakers. Leave me alone and let me stay out of it. And most business people will do that. But, you know, I'm politically inclined. I got sucked into it. I made some mistakes. I feel like I'm like the Michael Corleone of politics. I was trying to get out of the goddamn thing and I got brought back in. And what he was doing, somebody had to speak out.
1: Do you have any political goals now?
2: Me? No, I don't have any political. I'm trying to stay married. Okay, that's my political goal. Okay, I'm up. I'm up for re-election of my marriage every day. I think I'm on like a one-day term. My political goal right now is I am campaigning, and that's to stay married. It's a re-election campaign. So it's a
1: worthy goal.
2: Yeah, I don't have any political goals. And by the way, if I had political goals, I think I would have been more contrived about everything. Uh, I don't think you're I don't think politicians are as direct as I have been about things. And so you ask me the question. I'm on the Bill Maher show. I defended him seven out of eight times. The question comes to me, Catherine Rampell from The Washington Post. She's sitting next to me. She said, well, what about the squad and what he just said about the squad? Do you agree with that? I said, no, I don't agree with that. That is a racist, nativist trope that has been said to ethnic Americans forever. Okay. They told my Italian-American grandparents, go back to the country that they came from. I don't like that conversation. I think it's a racist conversation. I wish the president would not say that. It does not serve him well. No, I am not for that. I do like this, I do like that, I do not like that. The show ended, Uh, you can't do this anymore, Bill, because of COVID, but he used to have a post-production party. we're sitting there with a, uh, a soda pop and he looks at me and he says, well, you're in trouble. I said, I'm in trouble. He goes, yeah, yeah, Trump is going to light you up tomorrow on Twitter. I said, well, why is that? I was out there defending him. He said, well, no, you were seven for eight for Trump. Yeah. See, Trump is a demagogue. You have to go 13 for 10. Yeah. And since so you weren't seven for eight, he's not going to light that. He just started hitting you on Twitter. I said, Bill, I don't, I'll, t- I'll make a bet with you. I bet him dinner at Craig's, a fancy restaurant in L.A., I said, no way he's going to do that. I I, I gave him a million dollars personally. I raised them tens of millions of dollars, hundreds of hours of media advocacy, worked on his transition team. There's no way he's coming from it. Okay, so what do you think happened? The next day, he started lighting up Bill Maher. And then an hour later, he started attacking me. Okay, so guys, you can go back to those tweets. I'm a New Yorker. Okay, you're going to attack me. No problem, I'm going to attack you. So I think I said... I think I called him Fidel Adolf Trump because I tried to get the fat shaming in there with the dictatorship. And so I think I called him the notorious FAT. Uh, And that got him inflamed. And so he hit me again and then I hit him again. I said, listen, he's a very bad guy. He's turning on me now. Someday he's going to turn on you. And someday he's going to turn on the entire country. You can go look at the Twitter feed. That's what I said. And then he did the Ted Cruz move. What is that? He starts attacking my wife. You can go look at that. He knows my wife and I almost got divorced as a result of my working for him. And now he's attacking my suburban housewife on the presidential Twitter feed with his 2x Super Bowl audience. So then I took the gloves off. Yeah. And I said, okay, you're going after my wife. I am not Ted Cruz. I'm a fellow New Yorker. And I'm going to eviscerate you. And I know exactly what I need to do to help you lose the next election. And I will be working tirelessly on that uh, for the next 19 or 20 months. And that's what I did, no matter what he said on Twitter, no matter what the death threats were, no matter what the pictures of people were taking up my house saying they were gonna come through the door, hurt my family, all of that's happened. No problem, I'm gonna take this guy on. And we figured out a system to break off three to 5% of those Republicans. And he lost that election freely and fairly. It was a non-fraudulent election. And truth be told from November 3rd to today, Every day he provided evidence why he should not have been president of the United States, including the traitorous and seditious insurrection, which he was impeached for.
0: Wow. I mean, I think, you know, especially for right. Trump. I mean,
2: uh, but I'm telling yeah. you right now, your viewers are getting an image of me. They're thinking, no, this guy's not Ted Cruz.
0: <laughs> which is, is a good thing.
2: you going to call my wife ugly and my father, killed JFK, but I'm here to be your sycophant right. and your supplicant. That's not working for somebody like yeah. me.
0: Yeah. And I think that's why so many Republicans are afraid of it too. Cause it's, if, I think Rick Wilson termed it best. He, he, he had, a, he was on our podcast and he said fear of mean tweets. And I think that's exactly what a lot of Republicans are afraid of. Cause when he does go after you, I mean, the threats are unimaginable. And
2: yeah, just, you're getting death threats. They're yeah. mailing letters to your house. They're taking pictures They're sending you, they're calling your cell phone screaming into your cell phone. He has created a license for rage and a license for anger that is absolutely and totally unconscionable Mm -hmm. in our country. He's a despicable human being. He's the most un-American president of our lifetimes, for sure, and perhaps in US history. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he's the only American president that I can think of, unless you guys know of one, that did not accept a peaceful transfer of power after the democratic process was concluded. And so he'll go in the pantheon of rogues uh, tantamount to Jefferson Davis and people like Benedict Arnold, he is one of the more, most most despicable of all political leaders. And I'll I'll tell you this: he's a domestic terrorist. Okay, and he is the domestic terrorist of the 21st century. If Timothy McVeigh holds that title in the 20th century, Donald Trump, okay, led an insurrection, disavowed the peaceful transfer of power in the United States. I am very proud. Okay. And I tell my kids, this is another learning lesson for young people. It's okay to get something wrong, but you can't stay wrong. Okay. I got something wrong. I supported the guy, but at the peak of his popularity in July of 2019, I disavowed him and I went to work against him. And so there's a big lesson there. You can get things wrong. Don't stay wrong.
0: Yeah, I mean, you've offered so many great pieces of advice. And I think also, you know, Jill and I, we've talked a lot about um, networking, and we'd love to have you back on for um, talking about networking and all of that. But I think that brings us into perfectly our next, my next question, which is, where do you think the Republican Party goes from here? Um, And I guess, how do you kind of go back to a time where we can communicate facts and truth um, to Republicans and Trump supporters?
2: Well, there's no leadership in the Republican Party, and so there's a when you have a vacuum, you end up falling back on things. And so there's a group of people like Hawley and and Cruz, two traitors, that think the Republican Party's future is Trumpism. Or uh, Mike Pompeo, he thinks the Republican Party's Trumpism. And then there's another group that's just resident and you know just floating with the curve. And so without a leader, you know, a real leader would step into the Republican Party and say, okay. What's going on here is completely wrong. We have to restate our principles. We have to reestablish our values. And oh, by the way, if you don't want to be an aging group of white people that buy uh, my pillows and catheters from Fox News commercial interruptions, we have to open up the party to this wider, colorful mosaic of people. And so, you know, if we don't do that, if the party doesn't do that, it will be a finished party. There'll be a center right party established that will compete against it. Uh, That will liquidate those two parties and the Democrats will control the card table for the next generation so hopefully a leader will emerge a political leader that has common sense and wisdom and can weld the party back together and sides of the factions of the party can trust each other because I really believe you don't want one Party management of the United States. You have to restore the Republican Party now you had Rick on, Steve Schmidt, those guys are out. They hate the party. They think the party is beyond ruin and it could never come back. Uh, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I'm not a politician. I'm a business person. and What I know about business is things can come back. Uh, that may not be the case of politics. I don't know, but I think this thing is broken and it requires real leadership.
1: So let me just ask a few real quick questions. Um, and one of them is, What is your view about holding Trump accountable? Um, There's been arguments that healing of the nation requires that he be let go. And then there's the argument that healing of the nation requires that he be held accountable. Where do you fall?
2: Well, I'll answer quickly. He needs to be jailed. He needs to be in prison. And so you're not going to heal the nation by letting him go because you'll make him more powerful. You've impeached him twice now. He'll say to people, well, I got impeached by the radical left, and I'm your martyr, and I'm your savior. He's an insurrectionist, he's a traitor, he's a seditionist, and he's a domestic terrorist. So he needs to be jailed. All the evidence is there. He's got to go to jail. Go ahead. Let's go to the next question.
1: Okay, next question. You were invited to the farewell ceremony tomorrow, well, on Wednesday, the inauguration day. Um, And how did you react to getting that invitation?
2: I laughed. I forwarded it to Don Lemon. He laughed. He said, "There's no way." I said, "Yeah, no, yeah, way." What do you mean, no way? And then he said, uh, "Are you going?" I said, "What do you mean, I'm going?" I said, "I got, I've got an appointment. I got a very important appointment. My fingernails are being ripped from my body on that moment, so I won't be able to make it. Said, Give me a break, you know what I mean?" But I mean, that's a sign of their disorganization. That's the sign that they're grasping for straws. I haven't given a dollar to the Republican Party in over four years, literally since the fiasco happened for me. And uh, but I'm on their donor list, and they're anxious about having this dictatorial send off for this guy, this tin pot dictator wannabe. And so they invited everybody. John Kelly wrote to me by text this morning, I got invited. Do you want to go with me? Ha ha. Okay. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> ha ha. You know what I mean? I said, can you imagine the two of us showing up at something like that? So that's a, that's a, a a case study in disorganization.
1: So last question, what do you think Trump will do when he um, realizes that he is out of office?
2: Well, I got him 50, 50 blowing his head off. Okay. And I know that sounds crazy, but I do think that this guy's finished. I think he's going to be indicted. I think he's going to be indicted, in the state of New York. He's going to be indicted by the IRS. He's gonna be convicted by the Senate. They can't let him go for this atrocity. Uh, you've got 10 that will probably move to convict already. You need another seven. I think McConnell's ready for that. He's made statements that he thinks Trump is the inspiration of the insur- insurrection. And I would just say to you guys in law school, there's a but for causation. And but for Mr. Trump's personality and his lies about the electoral process, you would have not had that fiasco on the 6th of January. So. For those reasons, I think he's going to jail, and so he's got a very binary outcome. He can either leave the country and try to find exile somewhere, he can go to jail, or he can end his life. And I think that those are the permutations for him in being a political figure. I have it a zero percent possibility.
1: Well, well this, that is a good note to end on.
0: Yeah, and this is this podcast has covered so much. We've talked about um, advice from my generation, which I know will be appreciated. We talked about Trump. We talked about your career. So. We just want to thank you, Anthony, for joining us today.
2: Well, I appreciate the questions. I hope you re- appreciate my responses. And uh, it was a real honor to be on, guys. Thank you. Thanks. Totally so much, loved
1: it. Thank yeah. you very much. Okay. We'll talk again. Okay. Be well, guys. Thank you. you. Thanks.
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode of Intergenerational Politics. Be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts to support future episodes. Thanks so much. See you in our next episode.